Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 93, Space Medicine. I'm Dan Hewitt, and I'll be your host today. If you're new to the show, we bring in the experts here at NASA to talk about all the different parts of our space agency. Recently, though, I got a chance to get out of the studio and head up to Comic Palooza in Houston, where we headed up a live recording of the podcast in front of a live audience of a couple hundred of our closest friends to discuss the science fiction and science fact of space medicine. Joining the esteemed panel was Gates McFadden, most famously known for her portrayal as Dr. Beverly Crusher, chief medical officer aboard the USS Enterprise in the TV show Star Trek Next Generation. She shared her insight into how space medicine worked in the far-off future of Star Trek and how she prepared for the role and assumed the character of a space doctor. And joining her on the panel were some actual space doctors, including Serena Anand-Chancellor, a NASA astronaut and former flight surgeon who flew in space last year, and also doctors Chris Lanehart and Richard Jennings. We go into detail on who they are at the very beginning of this panel. This is the first time we've recorded a podcast from outside of our home here at NASA, and this was the biggest live audience we've had yet. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to the, another live recording of Houston We Have a Podcast, again with Serena Anand-Chancellor, Richard Jennings, Chris Lanehart, and Gates McFadden. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Well, we'll jump right in. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is our panel on space medicine, all things space awesomeness, and also our first live recording outside of the Johnson Space Center for Houston. We have a podcast, so thanks for being here today. All right. If you're unfamiliar with us, uh, we do podcasts on all things human spaceflight. We get to talk to some really incredible people, actors, scientists, astronauts, engineers, the people doing amazing things that inspire us and are really pushing you know, humanity into the next generation. And so today, though, we're going to be focusing on space medicine. What happens to humans when you go into space? How do we keep you healthy? How do we prevent you from getting sick? How do we really keep you going when you're up there for extremely long periods of time? And I'm going to go down the line real quick, introduce my esteemed panel, and then we will jump right in. And I'm going to go to my notes because all of these people are insanely accomplished, and I want to make sure I don't leave anything out. So starting off, right to my left, we are joined today by Gates McFadden. Everybody's going to recognize her. Thank you, thank you. And uh, Gates, obviously famous for her portrayal of Dr. Beverly Crusher, which I must say, one of the coolest names in sci-fi history, <laughs> hands down. Uh, she was the chief medical officer aboard the USS Enterprise D and E under the command of Captain Jean-Luc Picard in the show Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> and so that show aired from 1987 to 1994. Gates, though, has directing, choreography, and puppeteering experience in film, uh, films like Labyrinth and The Muppets Take Manhattan, and was in a number of other pictures like The Hunt for Red October, a personal favorite of mine. Uh, when and when nature calls and then she's taught at several universities including the University of Southern California uh, Harvard the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and the University of Pittsburgh so again let's hear it for Gates Thank you. 
And then next to her, she's kind of easy to pick out. She's the astronaut amongst the group. This is Serena Anand Chancellor, and she is a NASA astronaut and medical doctor. She's been on the International Space Station. She recently completed a long duration stay, so <laughs> she was flying above all of us for about six months while she was up there in orbit. Uh, she was there from June through December of 2018, so recently reacclimated back here on Earth. She has a background, though, in internal medicine, and she was a flight surgeon before she was an astronaut and conducted a whole bunch of experiments on board the space station, including ones impacting diseases here on Earth and doing some cancer research on the station. So, Serena, thanks for coming out today. All right, and then we have Chris Lanehart, and this is a mouthful. He's the element scientist for exploration medical capability at NASA's human research program. That's like techno <laughs> All right, and so he also is at the senior faculty with the Baylor College of Medicine and the Center for Space Medicine and the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's board certified in emergency medicine, not just here in the USA, but also in Canada, and he works clinically in the emergency department at the Bentaub Hospital here in Houston. Uh, some of his main research interests are in medical care in extreme environments, so places like space, people in the military, and out in the wilderness. Uh, and then he's also a pilot, because again, like I said, you guys can't just have one job, can you? You have to do like 40 different things. Uh, also a pilot, he's a reservist in the Royal Canadian Air Force and an advanced open water scuba diver. So let's hear it for Chris here with us today. And then finally, down on the end, Richard Jennings, who is a clinical professor in space medicine at UTMB, and he's a flight surgeon for space adventures, and he's a member of the safety advisory panel to SpaceX, a couple of people might have heard of them, uh, and a medical consultant to Virgin Galactic. And he, ser he also served as a NASA flight surgeon, so something Serena's also done. Uh, he was there from 1987 to 1995 and continued to provide care until 2013. Uh, while he was at NASA, he was a chief of the Flight Medicine Clinic and chief of medical operations for the Space Shuttle Program, and he served as a director for U at U the UTMB NASA JSC Aerospace Medicine Program uh, as well. And as a lead uh, flight surgeon for Space Adventures, he's actually supported five missions on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft over in Kazakhstan and Russia. That's a pretty interesting place, and if you can corner him afterwards, ask him a bunch of questions, I guarantee he's got some really cool stories about that. Uh, he was also a president of the Aerospace Medical Association and currently serves on the board of the Aerospace Medical Association Foundation. So once again, let's hear it for Richard and for our entire panel for being here today. Okay, and that was, the, that was the abridged version of everybody's biographies, just to really let it sink in. Um, so before we really get into the nitty gritty of space medicine and medical technologies and stuff like that, I wanna start off with something that's it's really pertinent to a place like this at Comic Blues, and that's inspiration. A lot of people, one of the great things, if you work at NASA or you know somebody who does, they're extremely passionate about what they do. And the same is true for actors and artists. They're extremely passionate and they're always driven. So I want to know what kind of took each of you down that road. What was the guitar in the, in the pawn shop window moment? And starting off with Gates, what really kind of drew you to being actor, director, choreographer? And kind of more importantly, what drew you to something like Star Trek? Well, um, to be honest, I was pushed when I was young to be a performer. I, I always personally would play in the dirt pile making cities. I was like really into uh, the relationship of people and space. 
not necessarily the final frontier, but just kind of the dirt pile frontier. <laughs> but <clears throat> as I got older and I was performing more and more and I was learning about theater and I majored in, in, at the university, I graduated from Brandeis University. And then I met a man, I took a workshop at Harvard and he changed my life. So I would say he was the catalyst. He was someone who actually came to NASA. He was invited to NASA and um, he was unknown pretty much in the United States. But he was very into analysis of movement. Uh, he had started in sports medicine, and then he went into theater, and he was friends with some of the most famous French artists uh, of that period. But he believed that artists had a responsibility to help change the world for the better. And we actually studied things like architecture. We had to uh, understand music and how to compose music. It was sort of like, really, he synthesized a lot of ideas that I had had. Uh, because I liked more than one thing. I liked the whole process of creating something. And um, so when I came back to the United States, I was much, all my, all my friends had gone to New York to try to get an agent and, and make it. And I, was less thinking about my career, but thinking about how could I affect change in the world, or how could I be part of, participate in it. And so I started doing, you know, literally started doing some street theater, doing different things, uh, and then I started getting teaching positions because I knew how to teach his techniques, which were very much in demand. Um, and so I would say, that was the catalyst that got me thinking about the world. And it was complete chance that Star Trek happened. I was not really, I had done a lot of theater in New York City as, a, as an actor. Uh, I performed many, many, many plays and loved it because I loved transformation. So when Star Trek came up, I had actually been, already auditioned for a play I wanted to do with Linda Hunt and a director named Des McEnough. So believe it or not, I'm, this is really, I turned down Star Trek to go do this play for $400 a week. But you know what? I loved doing the play. And I had no comprehension about the Star Trek universe. I am so humbled now because I have learned more from the people I meet who have watched Star Trek. And yes, of course I learned watching the show and I, I, I loved when my character would be involved uh, in the Hippocratic Oath working against the prime directive. I loved that conflict. I thought that's really what we need to look at things like that, you know, the ethics of things, all sorts of things. And so I think that's for me, that's, that's really how I started to appreciate more and more how crucial Star Trek has been for so many people and for me, because now I feel such a bond and a community to people who really walk the walk, people like I was telling them, Jim Weatherby, who commanded several space shuttle missions, became a friend and we emailed from the space station. I, I actually was like, what, what, you know, and I asked him, I said, why are you, you're doing it, I'm just pretending. And he said, yes, but you're the inspiration. And I like to think I have a lot of Jean-Luc Picard in me. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, I get it, okay. So I'm Dr. Crusher, I get it. <laughs> and and that, that kind of hope and inspiration, because our show was so positive, it, it wasn't dystopian, it had a really, you know, we can work together as a community. I think that has been so important in my life right now to be a role model to young people 
uh, both as a single parent in the show and also as a medical commander. Uh, and uh, so anyway, it's a lot of talk. Sorry I talked so long. But <laughs> that for me, since I can't really walk the walk like they do, um, I'm honored to be part of this panel. Serena? Yeah, absolutely. Also honored to be part of this panel. This is really fun for me because this is the first time I've ever been here. Um, and it was just neat walking around a little bit prior to coming up here. But for me, um, I do remember probably at the age of eight or nine watching shuttle missions launch over and over. And for me, that is the memory that sticks in my mind as a catalyst. And, and my parents used to watch me do this. My, my father was an engineer and my mother was a novelist. <laughs> and so my father watched me for, you know, staring for hours at the television, watching anything I could about the space shuttle, and he said, do you want to work for NASA? And I said, I think so. And he wow. goes, well, then you need to be an engineer. And so they just, it was a sort of a matter of fact. There were no questions, no doubts. They just began to push me down that path. And then I felt like every door that's opened since then has really led me here. Now for me, I did major in electrical engineering, and this was out on the East Coast. But then midway through my engineering career, I had a lot of friends who were also in the pre-med program. And they kept coming to me saying, Serena, we think you should be pre-med also. We think you should be a doctor. We think you'd be really good at it. And I really pushed them away at first because I thought of all the work that was entailed with that and all the memorization. And I said, that's too much work. I don't want to do that. And they said, no, Serena, we really think you should do it. So I went home over the summer and talked with my parents, and they said, fantastic, we'll, we'll help you do that. And, and I made that shift. And, and honestly, it was the best decision I ever made because I am still a practicing physician. I absolutely love being a physician. It's, it is my passion. Um, and then as I was training through medical school, I, I was still thinking, how was I going to work for NASA? I didn't know how this was going to work, so I just went on the internet and started looking up things and, and found this really gro great rotation at, at Johnson Space Center about aerospace medicine. It was a clerkship that was offered, and I was just a few months away, so I applied and came down and, and learned all about the facets of aerospace medicine, space medicine, the effects on the human body. And then really, I met this man, Dr. Richard Jennings, that you'll see down on the left. He has really been my great mentor throughout my entire career. But he was the one that really introduced this field. And so I applied to get into this special training program after medical school for both internal medicine and aerospace medicine. And he was one of my program directors. So Richard and I have known each other for a very long time, and he's really meant quite a great deal to me in this path. Um, once I finished training, I became a flight surgeon and began looking after astronauts and their families and spent most of my time in Russia. So I got a little bit of a taste of what it was like and then applied for the astronaut corps in 2009 and was honored to get in. Um, it was a long journey to my first flight, uh, almost 10 years actually since coming in the corps and finally flying. Um, and after landing only about four months ago, after 197 days, people uh, ask what it was like. And it's almost hard to describe unless you're up there. Just the beauty of the earth, but really, more importantly, the science that we did. I was highly impressed at the caliber of science and how it impacts everyone down here, including every person in this room. So uh, it's great to be back, uh, number one, because I get to be here with my family, um, do events like this, and smell the earth again. <laughs> All right, Chris. 
It's going to sound a little corny, but <clears throat> my path to being here started with Star Trek. <laughs> I remember being a little kid, uh, lying on the floor in front of the TV, watching reruns of the original series with my mom. And I was a little kid in Canada, and if my accent had not already given me away as a Canadian, uh, <laughs> I really love the idea of doing something in the space sector, but Canada is a pretty small country and we have a space program, but it's a pretty small space program. And I thought for a long time I wanted to be a vet. I liked animals and I wanted to take care of animals. And I met with a high school guidance counselor who said to me, don't you really like space? And I said, yes. And they said, well, how are you going to do space stuff if you're a vet? <laughs> well, NASA has actually selected veterinarians previously to be in the astronaut corps, but not for a long time. And so I just switched species. I became a medical doctor, and I did that because there was a Canadian astronaut by the name of Dave Williams. He was an emergency physician, and I thought, that sounds like a cool job. Maybe if I do that, I can be an astronaut. Well, I'm sitting beside an astronaut, so that's pretty good, but now I get to help design medical systems for space exploration. And so if you can't be there, then being part of the mission is the next best thing. And it's been a real honor to do this job and to be up here on this panel. Incredible. I'm not sure uh, why if you have two susceptible individuals and they both get exposed to an infectious agent, why one gets it and one doesn't get it. But in 1955, I saw the movie Conquest of Space. And then in 58, we had Explorer 1 images on our bulletin board in class. And I got extremely interested in space. And I followed every launch, every scrub, getting up at 3 in the morning and listening to Shorty Powers from Mercury Control talking about that. And then later on, there was a, a, movie, a TV series. And there's a real power, I think, with television and movies that affect people. And I saw Men into Space, mm. which starred William Lunigan. Uh, Chuck Berry from NASA was a consultant on that show, actually. And then eventually, I decided I wanted to be Bill Douglas or Chuck Berry. That they became people that I wanted to be. I wanted to be taking care of the doctor, the, be a doctor taking care of the astronauts and the space program. And in college, instead of writing on the, the uh, Beowulf and its imagery or whatever, I got to write about the medical aspects of the space program. I've been doing it now for the last 50-something years. All right. All right, we're going to jump right in. We are going to take questions at the end in the last 15 minutes or so, so start thinking now. Uh, but let's jump into kind of what we're doing in this day and age. So Serena. You were a flight surgeon. You were an astronaut. What does the medical picture look like? How are, how are we preparing people to go to space right now? And how are we maintaining them while they're up there and once they come back? Yeah, so that's actually pretty complicated. Most, mm. there's not all, so but the preparation to go into space, most of that involves training of space station systems. And, and you know, we, of course, stay healthy and, and get as much exercise as we can. But once you're in space, you're in space. You're in microgravity, and we can't stop microgravity. It's going to affect the body. 
and does it in multiple ways. Um, for me, the first few days, you just don't feel that good. Um, your stomach doesn't feel that good. Your head feels a little big. You've had this massive fluid shift that's occurred, so you feel really stuffy and full. And of course, you're floating everywhere. And so you're desperately trying to grab onto handrails with your hands because you haven't learned how to use your feet yet. And you haven't learned how to really move like a monkey. Uh, and that's, we got really good at that towards the end of the mission. Um, and of course, immediately the things that are occurring that you don't feel, your bones, your muscles, you're no longer loaded by gravity. And so those start to, in essence, break down almost immediately. Um, you don't feel it, but after six months, if you don't do anything to counter it, you'll know. And so we actively try and keep our bodies as healthy as we can. Uh, for example, we lift weights every day on board the space station. And people say, well, how do you do that? Well, we have a special device that creates a load using vacuum tubes. And we're able to do squats or bench press and all kinds of exercises. We run on a treadmill where we're wearing a special harness and it loads us down. We don't get our full body weight, but we kind of gradually move up. So we've gotten to be pretty good at countering a lot of these changes. Now, again, that's really for only about six months in low Earth orbit. So the game really does change as we move on towards Mars, have a surface day, and come back. Uh, and we're still working on, on many, many ways to try and keep ourselves healthy all the way there and back. Because now you've got other things that kick in, like space radiation, extended stays away from family. You can't see the Earth anymore. There's so many aspects mm to preparing the human for exploration missions, it'll boggle your mind. But that's really what we all work on most of the time. Yes, amazing. And we've, we've, we've gotten here after you know over 50 years of exploring. Richard, kind of take us through the genesis of all of that. When, when we were starting to launch people into space and we didn't know what the heck was going to happen when they started floating around. I mean, there were wild theories about some stuff. What, what, what were those kind of early days like? This July the 16th will be the 50th anniversary of the launch of uh, Apollo 11. Wow. And I'd like to get back to Apollo 11, but what is really remarkable about it, the Apollo program and Apollo 11 is that a very young president, a very young president after a 15 minute suborbital flight said that we should send a man to the moon and bring him back safely and do it in this decade. I don't think he's pronounced it decade, but nevertheless. Uh, and it's pretty quick. So you can't look at Apollo 11, I don't think, without considering the flow that occurs through Mercury, uh, Gemini, and, and then Apollo. And a lot of people aren't aware that there was a huge controversy with regard to Mercury. Mercury was where we were going to send our first astronauts into space. Alan Shepard was the first one. John Glenn was the first to orbit. But there was a roaring controversy where a lot of the scientists in the country did not think we should do it, that we would kill them. And in fact, a Wiesner report was filed on January, early January, given to Kennedy that uh, we shouldn't do it. We should be doing animals, doing robotics, and, and those sort of thing. And because of that, one, we had protected ourselves a little bit by taking astronauts who had to go through a five-phase selection cycle. They were extremely fit, extremely healthy, and shorter. Uh, they couldn't be, uh, five foot 11 was the highest they could be, and they were all in their 30s. And uh, sometimes we give up our youth and our health to, to get the money to like to do these flights that people are doing now for $40 million. But they were very healthy. And so, 
Because of this report and other problems, at the end of January, the last day of January, we launched HAM, uh, a chimpanzee on a flight, which was, a lot of people don't talk about it, but it was sort of semi-disaster. He ended up experiencing 15 Gs, and he also uh, uh, almost, the capsule almost sunk before they could get it out of the water. It took on 800 pounds of uh, water. But uh, that gave people some confidence we could launch Alan Shepard. And we previously launched a squirrel monkey and a, a rhesus monkey, uh, Abel and uh, Miss Baker, uh, uh, earlier. So we had some pretty good confidence. The Russians had launched Belka and Strelka, but they had a big meeting in March, and they said, okay, let's go do it. Unfortunately, what happened on April the 12th of 1961, we weren't the first. Uh, Yuri Gagarin orbited one time then, so when finally whenever Alan Shepard flew, it was May the 5th, we had delayed long enough that he wasn't the first into space. But the whole idea of the Mercury program was could humans survive? And if they, would they be an effective crew member inside the vehicle? And they were. Uh, they did very well. The flights were limited. You know, the first two were suborbital, two five-hour flights, and then a six-ref flight, and then a 34-hour, 22-ref flight. Very limited. The only medical thing that came out of that, and we only did pre- and post-flight physicals, not much during the mission, was that they had a little tendency when they stood up to get lightheaded and have a fast heart rate. After Mercury, Gemini came along, and that's the one that both from a technical and a medical standpoint led to Apollo 11. Uh, 2,000 man hours of time were accumulated in space. They had, because we were going to do lunar uh, rendezvous uh, for our landing on the moon, we had to learn how to rendezvous and, and dock. And we also uh, had to learn how to do EVA. And so that was critical and was done in Gemini. But from a medical side, most of our lunar missions were going to be 12, longest would be 12 days. So they needed a little margin there. And so they started making the flights longer. And Gemini 4 was four days. And to be cautious, they just doubled it. Uh, Gemini 5 was eight days. And then Gemini 7 was 14 days. And during those missions, they did do some countermeasures and other things. But generally, they were doing pre- and post-flight except for those kind of flights. It was a huge success. The program was a huge success. We did find that people do have a little bit of loss in blood volume. They lost some weight. EVA had a real high load of, uh, uh, it, really workload was much higher than we anticipated. Uh, they had cardiovascular deconditioning and the orthostasis passing out when you stand up got a little bit worse. But overall, the feeling was we could go to the moon and we didn't have to do a whole lot of testing during the Apollo program. Some of the things we learned early in the Apollo program was the Russians had had motion sickness when they launched. In fact, in their second flight with Titov, they had motion sickness. And we got into that on Apollo 8 and Apollo 9 because uh, we, we had a bigger vehicle and they were moving around. We also learned the value of a health stabilization program, a quarantine before the flight, because we had sickness on Apollo 8, sickness and a delay of the mission on Apollo 9. And uh, Apollo 13, you're all familiar with the measles exposure. And so after that, they came up with the health stabilization program. But Apollo 11, when we got to Apollo 11, they felt pretty comfortable at that point. Apollo 10 had been a real similar mission. Uh, just from a medical standpoint, they did not have a lot of things on board. For example, no dental equipment, none whatsoever. Mm. And just a few medicines because they were so concerned about weight. To give you an example, when, when uh, uh, Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon, they had six Band-Aids in their kit. 
They did have 12, but they took out six Band-Aids because they were too heavy. Oh and they were God. really trying to make the kits, you know, lighter and lighter, so there were some really big constraints on, on what you could take. And each of the astronauts had to test those drugs so we wouldn't have, you know, an untoward, untoward reaction to them. When, uh, when we did the mission, this one went fine. Probably less medicines used on Apollo 11 than any other flight. They did use some aspirin. Uh, it's interesting, Mike Collins had had knee problems and pain in his knee on, on Gemini 10, and he had it again on uh, Apollo 11. He had never told anybody about that until he mm. wrote his book later on, because they usually don't want to tell the doctors uh, something that might cause problems with a future flight assignment, but he did have that. When they decided to get into the lunar module and, and land on the moon, they did take medicine to make the GI system slow down, called low modal. They did that, they used two of those. And, and then when they got ready to land, they used a scopolamine dexedrine because a spacecraft like a capsule, and we're finding this out you know, now with the capsules we're using to landing on water, they're great in space, but they're really bad boats. And when you land in the water and they're moving around, people really get sick. But they did not use too many, and they had a really great flight. One thing that people forget, though, is we were worried after Apollo 11 about bat contamination. In other words, them, not us bringing something to the moon, but finding something on the moon that was deleterious to humans. So when they came back, before they, when they, before they got out of the capsule, they put on these biological isolation garments that they wore. Then they went into a, a mobile quarantine facility, which is kind of like a Airstream trailer, and that trailer was brought to Houston and put in a, the lunar receiving lab, which is also in isolation. And all the the spacecraft and the moon the materials were put into that, and uh, they had to stay in that for 21 days from the time they launched from the surface. But overall, Apollo 11 was a great mission, built on a lot of work from really hundreds of thousands of people, and based on Mercury, Gemini, and then. Can I ask a question? Couple, I, I wanted to know if an astronaut has some has had some surgery that they have any piece of a metal screw or anything inside. Are they would they be prohibited from doing a mission? And, or and the second part of that is what has been the most serious uh, illness that has required some sort of uh, intervention that has happened? You're talking about in space. Yeah. We have, the United States hasn't really had much. Okay. We've been lucky. There's a reason, it's not luck, truthfully, it is some luck. People, things can happen to people, but for the most part, like, give you examples, go back to Apollo. They, they have a selection physical, which is unbelievable. They have annual physicals, and then for Apollo, they have physicals, fairly extensive, L minus 30, or F minus 30, they call it back then, before the, 30 days before the mission, 15 days before the mission, five days before the mission, and they're really looking at things. Like, we don't carry dental equipment, but they don't allow any dental restorations, for example, okay. in three months before the flight, because new restorations are the ones most likely to cause problems. Right. We have not had any. We, on, back to the Apollo program, on Apollo 15, one of the crew members had cardiac dysrhythmia. Okay. And they thought it was due to potassium, and it may have been, but it turned out this particular person had extensive coronary artery disease. This was before you could do calcium studies or okay. uh, you know, CT angiograms of coronary vessels, and he had extensive disease, and within two years of the flight, he had a cardiac arrest due to a heart attack. The Russians have had some. They've had kidney stones. They've had some things happen. Mm. But in general, we've been extremely lucky. And what if they, like with the kidney stone, what happened? What did they do? Well, you 
for men, you give them something to make their prostate smaller. You might hydrate them a little. You use pain, pain medicine, medication. then you wait. Yeah, yeah. But no one's performed any real surgery. Well, we do on we do on animals some uh, to, uh, using a glove box, and it's been practiced in zero gravity in uh, zero gravity airplanes. We've done laparoscopy, we've done cystoscopy, hmm. laparotomies. We've done all the things you can do. But you did it in 22 second increments, not in, the, not in space. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. And so Gates, kind of, we, we heard a little bit about what the very beginning of space medicine was like your, in your world that you played in. Yeah, Dr. Crusher was much more advanced. He was much, much, <laughs> much more advanced. <laughs> I had quite a few degrees and yeah, right. <laughs> Building on the legacy of people like Richard Jennings, but what, what are some of the really kind of fantastical technologies that stood out for you that you got to interact with? Well, I loved when, uh, you know, we were replacing spines and uh, first of all, the tricorder is just such an amazing machine and people have developed a tricorder now. It's not, it's not out there, but XPRIZE actually had it all uh, from all over the world, teams develop a tricorder. I mean, how fantastic is that? Because to be able to diagnose quickly and to really take the readings of, of everyone's, you know, what, what's going on in their body, you would know if someone had the uh, heart arrhythmic thing. So I think, I think there really were so many fantastic things that, that we were able to do in theoretical, you know, on, on the spaceship. One of the things that I really found I think about this quite a lot, actually, is we had, so we had data, all right, and he was the android, so he's the, the, the machine uh, creature. But now I know that even in medicine, we put parts of the brain in that can make someone who's had a, um, an arm amputated, it can make it so that they can, they can function with a, uh, you know, a new arm that's, that's there, a bionic arm. And I, I think about things like privacy and, and how, how do you, like what happens when, we haven't really done anything, have we? I don't know, I haven't done it, but in the, with the brain where there's some sort of technology where they're trying to deal with things like the depression without, and I'm not talking schedules, but literally, you know, you have your own private thoughts. A computer doesn't have their own private thoughts. <laughs> and pretty soon, you know, it's like what happens when it's the, the blend? Do we ever get to that point? And what are the ethical questions about that? And I'm fascinated by that. I don't know if I'm totally speaking, you know, asking something stupid, but <laughs> I'm interested. Well, I mean, Chris, I know you're involved in some of those kind of futuristic technologies. Things like a tricorder might be around the corner in space. What are, I mean, what are some of the things that you've seen, you've been working on that kind of get you really excited for the next couple of decades? It, it's very fascinating working at NASA and looking at the way that we care for people in space because you would think that we have the newest and greatest technology in space to take care of people. But what we actually have are things that are very well tested, tried and true things. Um, and we haven't really been pushing the boundaries of what space medicine or technology could look like in the future. And that's because we have been working right now for the last 20 years on the International Space Station. And the goal in terms of medical care for the space station is send up extremely healthy people, send up medicine and equipment you could use to manage things day-to-day -day kind of things like aches and pains 
But if you have an emergency, a true emergency, then there's enough equipment up there to stabilize someone, and then the plan is to get them home as quickly as you can. Um, and thankfully, we have not had to do that because, as has been said, we send really healthy people to space. Now, in the future, we are not going to be able to evacuate people. If you are three months on the way to Mars and something bad happens, you are not coming home again. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to be working on now in the future are developing systems that try and allow us to provide more capability in space. So testing out ultrasound machines that are basically the size of my fist and plug into a phone. Mm. And developing x-ray technology that's extremely small and portable and can be used in space or even developing new computer technologies so we can transfer data around and move information better. Right now, we don't store medical data on the space station. We send it all to the ground because it's super easy to do that. But when you have a communication delay, you're going to Mars and it takes 20 minutes for information to move back and forth, sending every little piece of information back and forth is just not efficient. So how do we manage that on the spacecraft, and then hopefully when someone does get sick on the way to Mars, you're gonna have a doctor with them who's gonna have access to all that information and all those new technologies, and they're gonna be able to use those to take care of people in space. And so that's the ultimate goal. Do you work with cryonics at all? I mean, do you work with the idea of getting people, like, theoretically, to, if you're sick and you can't really treat it, but you can take their temperature down. With, is that something that you, you all even talk about? So there is actually a, a NASA project um, that is looking at advanced concepts. Um, and one of the concepts that they're looking at is something like that. Um, they call it torpor. And basically, it's the idea of, can I slow down someone's metabolism and essentially preserve them for longer because we've done that? So those are concepts that. Uh, we still look at and we're very interested in in the future, but we can't even do that on the ground really very well right now. So uh, NASA doesn't like to fly things into space that we haven't tested ad nauseum on the ground. Uh, and so that one's still many years away. Thank you. And so one of my favorite things about Star Trek and a lot of science fiction is actually the, the myriad of alien diseases and things like that we end up running out to on the final frontier. Because I mean, right now, NASA, we mostly worry about people bringing stuff from Earth with them. You know, that's why we do the quarantine and stuff, things like that. Gates, what are, what are some of the really memorable, you know, viruses or plagues that you guys had to combat that, you know, really stand out in your mind? Well, of course, there was the, the naked now that makes you just kind of <laughs> nicely drunk, I guess. That one was always very fun. But um, it's, and, and also what that actually brings up is, so if everyone's, has, is affected by this virus, how does the, the, the medical teams, in spite of their, the effects of this virus, figure out with the computer what's going on and, and how to solve it and, and how to diagnose it and then how to treat it? Um, I mean, there were a lot of things like that. And, and then, of course, there were invasive things that would take over your, your mind and do all of that. That's why I think it's fascinating. Um, 
the, the, the psychological aspect of all of it and how do you deal, I, I, I always have admired the astronauts because obviously they're going to be top-notch people who are driven, who know how to do their program, and it's like the people who fly those, the, the fighter jets, you know exactly what you're supposed to do so you're not in terror, you're like, I do this, then I do this, then I have to check this, and I work out now and I do this, and that's fantastic, but just to be aware of and uh, psychologically all the things that you that could be happening when you said when you can't see earth anymore that was fascinating can you talk more about that because to me that's that's the reason i personally want to go into space is so that i can actually look at earth and get a new perspective but once that's not there what's that like how do you deal with that yeah so i think looking at kind of psychological or behavioral issues that we're going to have to deal with on a long exploration, exploration class mission are huge. I think they've been on the bottom of everybody's priority list because they're very touchy-feely and hard to discuss and you don't have distinct treatments for some of these things, but what do you do as Earth becomes smaller and smaller and smaller? What do you do when you want to talk to your family and the time delay gets to the point where you're left with only recorded messages that you send back and forth? You know, for us in the station, we can see the Earth all the time. We fly over continents very quickly. I, I could call my husband on his cell phone pretty mm. much at any time I wanted. I had that communication. So to me, that was very important. I still felt connected to Earth. I had the internet. You know, I could look at the news online. That was important. So how do we deal with that as we move further and further away? And, and there are a lot of people looking at these things, um, but perhaps we have to go back kind of to the old explorers. And, and I will say that um, even during our mission, there was a Soyuz that was supposed to make it up there with two more of our crewmates, and that, that ship did not make it, it aborted. Uh, the crew was safe because the launch abort system worked perfectly and saved their lives, but all of a sudden, it was just three of us, right. and we thought, oh dear, things have changed. Still plenty of work to do, but the entire dynamic changes up there. And so we had just watched um, a movie talk, uh, talking about Ernest Shackleton and his time mm. with his crew and, and how they were stranded for certain parts. And so the commander at the time of on board the space station was Alex Gerst from Germany. And so we decided to do some of those things. We threw a Halloween party. It was just the three of us, but you know what? We had a small party. We had costumes, everything. Well, it's creative. And Absolutely. I think, see, I think that's the part. And if, if I can, like, again, yes. it's with Star Trek because... To be creative, you're using parts of your brain and you are imagining things and to just to engage the imagination so that it's not only scientific. I mean, obviously you have to be, be imagining in order to be scientific. You wouldn't even come up with the idea that you want to prove. But I think sometimes it's getting away from it totally, being out of your comfort zone, that you really can discover something about yourself. And, and discovering something about myself makes me much more engaged in the world. Like, oh, I didn't realize I would be like that if I were doing this or whatever. You learn about yourself. You're interested in yourself and less worried about being interesting. You're interested, you know, in, in things. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the things we also did, just because the station is a very sterile environment, right? There are no smells of earth. There's no wind. There's no rain. Uh, you have the same people that you're with. And so the one way we could make station more human on the inside was music. And I didn't realize how important music, I mean, I listen to music down here in my car or wherever, but up there, 
we had music all the time. And depending on which module you were in, you could be listening to Queen or to Mozart. It just depended on who was working in that module at that time. But that, for me, made the space station so much more human. And it just felt like we belong there, and this was ours. Well, so, so far, we've only had to really worry about a limited number of people in space at any given time. Like, you only have six people, typically seven sometimes, on board the space station. In the future, we're going to be in situations like Dr. Crusher was, where you have an entire starship's worth of people, an entire colony's worth of people, especially as we have commercial companies starting to fly people into space. What do you guys see kind of over the horizon and even kind of longer term in the world of space medicine? Well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, exci I'm really excited about uh, commercial space flight and co the commercial crew program. I, I know how to count seats, and there's a few more seats in the, those vehicles than just for the astronauts, and so we'll be flying some other people, and there'll eventually be free flyers in low Earth orbit and colonization of Mars if, if uh, hopefully we'll become a multiplanetary species. I'm excited by it. Up till now, all the people have been selected pretty much by agencies, bureaucracies, that sort of thing. And commercial space flight can be much more agile. Uh, it, finally, we'll have some, some non-traditional people flying. I've, we've had eight that flew to the International Space Station through space adventures. And you have computer experts, you have artists, uh, all different kind of people. And that's great. We need a different people flying in mm -hmm. space. One of the other things is that, back to going to, to, to the long duration flights, we're going to have to learn how to take care of medical conditions that do develop, like Gates was talking about. We don't have much experience in that. Well, where can we get it? Commercial space flight. Just like I said, you give up your youth and your health to be able to afford one of those flights. And it's a little bit self-serving for me because I always have to get these guys approved to fly. But it, we ought to require that they have something wrong with them. <laughs> In other words, where else can we learn unless we do that? And so I'm very excited. I'm excited that the numbers are going to increase, that, that we'll have non-traditional crew members flying. I think the biggest issue will not be medical. It gets back to what you were just discussing is the psychological aspect. And that's why I do think a nice six-month training program is a good deal. If there are going to be problems, they'll tend to come out. Most anybody can be on their best behavior for a couple of weeks, but you put them in a stressful situation, teamwork, over six months, if there's a problem, you're going to find out about it. But I'm terribly excited about commercial spaceflight. One of the, the, I went to Gene Roddenberry my first year. I, I said, can I, can I base a lot of my character on Dr. Oliver Sacks, who was this amazing neurologist? I had read all of his books up to, and he's still, you know, even now that he's passed, he still has books that have come out. Uh, the most amazing things, because it's all about neurology in the brain, and it's such a burgeoning field right now, as is radiology, which is enormous. But it's, it's fascinating, just on Earth, all the things the brain does. And when we go up in space, and all that we don't know, and when it changes your entire perspective of the, of, the universe, right? Your, your, my perspective would be completely changed. I'm not looking up like that. I'm, I'm looking around and either seeing nothing or seeing the Earth small. That has to be profound. That certainly is something that would drive me, sh should I have the money ever, to go up into space. I think that would be amazing. Well, 
Gates, I'm happy to pull my money with yours and we can go together. <laughs> All uh, right. We, we did get, uh, we're going to have to end a little early, so I want to start questions now if you guys have questions. We have a mic here in the center, so if you want, go ahead and line up and we can start taking some questions for our, our panel. And if you know who the question's to, just go ahead and ask them. Well, the first question I have is, are there any plans on cross-training? Because right now I see it as there's just one doctor on the station at a time. What happens if the doctor gets sick? Hmm. Good question. So actually all of the astronauts that fly to station are trained to about the level of a basic EMT. Um, they get training in hospital settings, in ERs. They learn how to suture. They learn how to put in Foley catheters. Um, they are familiar with almost pretty much every piece of equipment that we have up there. And in fact, we do joint trainings as a crew um, for what we call bad events. Uh, we do have a defibrillator up there as well. And so our folks are pretty well trained when they get up there. That being said, you're right. Um, we don't have a doctor with every crew. I wish we did. That'd be more flight opportunities for all of us docs out there. Um, but we rely on the training of the crew and then the flight surgeons on the ground who are looking out after us. Now that's a benefit we have only being in low earth orbit in that we can talk to the docs real time, we can show them live video, they can help us walk through and talk us through anything that might happen. But yeah, cross training is definitely something we do. Okay, my daughter is 13 years old. Your show is her favorite show, and you're the one who made her want to be an astronaut. So my question is, for a 13-year-old girl going through high school and everything from a small town, what advice would you have for her going forward on a career path like that? Is she talking to me? Both of us, Me, both. Oh, both. Which one? Both. All of you. No, you go ahead. What, so my big thing that I would say, because I think this tends to happen with young girls, especially when they're in their um, early teens, is they see something they're really interested in, but they're afraid to ask about it. Or they see somebody that works and does a really cool job, and they think, that person doesn't have time for me. They're not going to have time to ask or answer my questions. And so I, I really encourage kids to bother meaning go up and talk to that person, find out what they do, ask if you can spend time with them. Um, and also remind them it's, it's okay to change their mind. So I started off in my college career as an engineer and, and initially I was just gonna continue on with engineering until friends and outside forces pushed me towards medicine. And so I was a little afraid thinking, wow, can I change my mind right in the middle of college? And it's totally okay to do. It's okay because you're gonna find out what you're passionate about and then it's all gonna work out just fine. So give her, the, for me, those two pieces of advice, I'd say she's gonna find something she's passionate about and whatever it is, just to stick with it. Uh, I will say that I meet, every time I do a convention, I meet so many extraordinary young women. I mean, really, the, the kids that come up to the table who are interested and know the show, they are sensational. I am a person who happens to believe that if, if these children grow up and they become the people who are you know, taking care of me in the old age, we're going to be fine. Uh, because they are interested in, uh, in, in all sorts of things. And I do feel that there's too much pressure, I think, dealing with anxiety and having to do everything. That's the one thing I notice more from being a teacher for 35 years on, on the university level. There's way too much pressure 
uh, on kids to know what they want to do so young. I mean, if you peak when you're, you know, uh, seven, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? <laughs> so I, I think that, they, that, that I would advise not to push, uh, expose children to a lot of different things and see what they, what they are drawn to. And then if they're drawn to it, then, then okay, then you can sort of guide a little bit more. But I, I feel having to make decisions of what they're going to do in their preschool years is, is it's ridiculous because I have some of the best people I've ever taught didn't know what they were doing and then they suddenly got passionate and wow, it's because they wanted it, you know? So I think it's both. It's listening to advice if people say, hey, you're really good at this, listening to advice and, and speaking up and asking questions. But I think it's also sometimes for the parents to just, parents just love them, you know, just love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great, great. <laughs> All right. So um, at the early start of NASA, there was talk about having a limited amount of weight you could have on the uh, flight up. With having the space station and everything else, um, and having, well, you mentioned how important music is, are people, are astronauts able to bring up now instruments or some other personal items to be able to play in space and just um, kind of let off steam? Yeah, I mean, we've had several instruments. We have keyboards, we have two guitars, we have a saxophone up there right now. Um, we had a pan flute uh, and three recorders on my, most, on my last of my mission here, so it was amazing. One of our cosmonauts seemed to pull every musical instrument out of his crew quarters that I, I didn't think it was even possible that he had any more in there, but he did, and we would gather often on Friday and Saturday evenings because two of our guys could play guitar and everybody liked to sing, and we tried to play the recorder. It was awful. Uh, but it didn't matter. It was something we could do together as an international crew. So, yeah. well, one thing I'd mention is that we're kind of at a changing point, though, with some of the large items on the yes. International Space Station. Our countermeasures that we have, the medical countermeasures, work great. The resistive exercise device, the treadmills, the uh, bicycle ergometers, these sort of things, they work really well, but they're just too big to go to Mars with. So one of the things we're having to look at, not only the countermeasure things, but the enjoyment things that you're talking about, they're going to be much more limited uh, for uh, exploration class type missions. And so we're, there's a lot of work going on in that area right now to get things a little smaller and what do we really need to support uh, exploration class missions. So maybe no guitar, but a ukulele, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they need a holodeck, I You're think, thinking. but that's, that's a ways off. That's how we used to blow off steam, right? Um, my question involves nutrition, and I know that nutrition is something that's almost in the medical field, um, but as, as, as important as music is, also good eating is important. So I um, was wondering if uh, these long mission to Mars, um, if the people would have any culinary excitement that hmm. they could take with them. We are studying that right now at NASA, and I can tell you it's, food is a real problem for Mars. So how do you make nutritious food that doesn't spoil, that lasts for more than three years? Um, it's really difficult. Uh, the other point you brought up, though, is interesting food. And I'm sure we could make a very unpalatable bar 
that everyone could eat every day, all the time. I've eaten them. Yes. <laughs> um, and it, it's, you don't realize the power of food, I think, until you don't have the variety. Um, and Serena, I think, can certainly talk about this. When fresh, fresh fruit arrives on a spacecraft, it's pretty magical. Uh, we're trying to grow vegetables in space right now. Um, and so there's lettuce that we've grown on board and we're working on other vegetables as well. But in the end, we're gonna have to do a significant amount of research to find out how we can make the food last, keep it interesting so we keep the crew healthy. An uninterested crew is not a good crew psychologically um, and they're gonna then have trouble achieving their mission and that's our primary objective. So in the end, nutrition is going to play a more and more important role in spaceflight, both psychologically and physically. So hi, my name's Natalie, and my question was for the people that are medical doctors. So what did you do when you didn't want to study at all? Um, personally, right now, I'm still in my pre-med years. Um, I haven't taken the MCAT yet. And um, I, I'm taking organic chemistry soon. So um, Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to be honest, I should be studying right now instead of being <laughs> Yeah, so you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have those times. Don't, don't get me wrong. We, I didn't fly through medical school loving every day and thinking that every class was fantastic and certainly not organic chemistry. Um, and so, but what was, what was important to me were the creative things I do on the side. What hobbies do you have? I engaged in sports a lot, in martial arts a lot. Um, so you always have to have things that kind of engage the other side of your brain to give yourself a break. Um, we do the same thing on space station. We work very long hours during the week, and then most of the time we have weekends off to go do things to give ourselves a break. A lot of times it's photography, it's looking out the window, it's talking to our families and friends. Because when you start to feel that burnout, that stress, what that tells me is you need to take a step back. Because uh, it's not that you don't like what you're doing anymore, but, but you need to make sure and engage in other things that really let yourself decompress and let your batteries recharge. Yeah, I mean, I think there's even, I'm not speaking now for any astronaut thing, but I have a son who's a violinist, and he, I mean, when, at certain points, it was like you have 100 pages of music you have to learn, and I mean, it's nine hours of practice, and he, he for years, he, he almost over-practiced. And as he's gotten older and better and better, he's learned that it's better to take a step back, do something totally different, even if it's a tight 20 minutes, you know. And then you go back to it and you actually plan how you get more organized. That he actually is now spends more time just creating, this is what I have to do in order to get to that concert. And he always plans in the breaks and when he's, you know, and he actually condenses now his practice time and he sounds better which is really fabulous. I wish I'd known that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one or two more. Hi, um, I've been reading some of the research that's come out from the um, study of the Kelly twins and the mutations from the extended period in space. How are we going to deal with that on the extended time you'd have in space on a mission to Mars? Yeah, it's a good stuff. <laughs> 
Thanks for that hard question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it is a real challenge, and I think that one of the things that the twin study showed us is that people do come back from space different than they went. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in, in space medicine is that there's many, many things that happen to us in space that are, we think that they're bad, but they're actually just adaptive processes. And we're getting used to a new environment, and humans are extremely adaptable in that respect. Um, there are other things about the space environment, though, that, that have a, a significant negative impact on us, and radiation is one of those. Uh, the way that we're going to deal with radiation, right now on the International Space Station, you're still very close to the Earth. And the Earth actually provides you with protection from the radiation of deep space. And so now, as we push out to the moon and onto Mars, we're going to have to deal with that deep space radiation environment. And the way that we're going to do that is through newer and better technologies. We're going to have to be able to shield spacecraft as well as possible to try and prevent the radiation from getting in. But then we also know that there's radiation that will pass through any shielding that we have. And in that, in that respect, we have to be able to then provide countermeasures to the astronauts so that they don't get sick. Um, and those are going to be nutrition-based. They may be medicines as well. Uh, exercise may play a role in that. There's many different ways that we might be able to prevent some of those changes. But the, at the end of the day, everyone who goes to space comes back different. And we have to accept that, and there is a certain level of risk associated with that. And if the mission is important enough, then the risk is worth it. All right, we can do one more question. I, I married up, didn't I? <laughs> Gates, I can't think of a single character anywhere in the Star Trek universe with a higher sense of personal integrity Aww. than Dr. Beverly Crusher, so I thank you for that portrayal. Aww, thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Anand if you could snap your fingers and live to see your greatest dream, your greatest space exploration dream, living, working in space, what would that be? If I could snap my fingers right now, I'd, I'd say what I'd love to see would be colonies on Mars, fully functioning, producing our own food, small cities, towns being built, schools being built, um, and a, and a huge diverse group of people with maybe some of the first children being born on Mars as well. And it may not be as far off as you think, um, but certainly along with that, I can't see us sticking with current means of rocket technology and it taking us that long to get there. And, and those ideas are also being developed, ion propulsion. How fast can the trip be much shorter? Can you go visit your aunt on Mars? <laughs> Could that be possible? Absolutely. And push on past Mars, what other planetary surfaces or bodies could we land on? So if I were to think about that right now, you know, protection of the human really is at the forefront of my mind. Can we keep the human safe from radiation and everything else that we've talked about here today? And at first, all these problems seem impossible, but every time we seem to overcome them. I mean, people ask me, wasn't it fantastic looking out at the Earth? How did your perspective change? And I'd say, sure, the Earth is beautiful, no question. But what really got me excited, where I really had to stop and say, wow, was watching all these vehicles, cargo vehicles pull up like it was everyday business. They'd come out and say, hello, station, we're bringing cargo. 
perform certain maneuvers and precisely come in and park just like they're parking in a parking lot. <laughs> now there's a lot more work that goes on behind the scenes for that, but it became so commonplace and I could see these vehicles just out the window and I thought, look how far we've come. So to think that we'll have colonies on Mars, that day's probably coming a lot faster than you think. I, and I just pray though that humanity can maybe start to learn from our mistakes instead of repeat them. <laughs> all right, unfortunately that's all the time we're gonna get today, so I just wanna thank our panel one more time, Gates, Serena, Chris, and Richard for joining us today. And thank all of you beautiful people for being here as well. Hope you enjoy the rest of Comic Palooza and go listen to us online. Houston, we had a podcast. Thanks. And that does it for our live recording. Thanks so much for sticking around to the end. If you want to learn more about space medicine and all of the insane things we're doing with humans in space and medical research, I suggest going over to nasa.gov HRP. That's our human research program website where you can read all about it. And if you want more of this podcast or some of the other podcasts NASA's putting out, head over to nasa.gov slash podcasts. And as always, to keep up with all the amazing research on board the station and the humans living and working on board, head over to nasa.gov slash ISS or follow us all around on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit any ideas and any questions that you might have, and we might cover it here on Houston We Have a Podcast. Podcast. This podcast was recorded on May 11, 2019. Special thanks to Alex Perryman, Nora Moran, Pat Ryan, Tracy Charles, JJ Shaw, Dale Guger, Michael Inner Bartolo, Shaniqua Vereen, Kathy Reeves, Courtney Barringer, Jeannie Aquino, and Jack Moore for helping to pull all of this together. Big team effort. And of course, a special thanks to Serena Anand Chancellor, Chris Lanehart, Richard Jennings, and of course, Gates McFadden for their time and expertise to really bring this panel to life. We'll be back next week. <laughs>